a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. After she failed to pick up her young children from school, a 23-year-old nurse was found strangled to death in her overflowing bathtub. But within hours of Cassie Farrington's body being discovered, investigators announced that they had finished processing the crime scene. This is Monsters. Cassie Farrington had been a high achiever her entire life. Born as Cassie Brooks on December 22, 1990, she grew up in Pima, Arizona and made her parents, Chuck and Darlene, proud from an early age. Throughout elementary school, she was always top of her class, and in high school, she got straight A's in every subject. She threw herself into extracurricular activities, softball, basketball, dance, track, and volleyball. For Cassie, all these achievements were leading her towards the same childhood dream, going to medical school and becoming a doctor. When she was 16 years old, Cassie took a pregnancy test and it came back positive. She and her boyfriend, Bradley Farrington, both wanted to keep the baby and as her pregnancy progressed, Cassie's long-term plans began to change. Medical school no longer seemed like a possibility. Instead, she was going to marry Brad and they were going to raise their baby as best they could. In one chaotic month, Cassie successfully graduated from high school, got married, moved out of her parents' home, and gave birth to her baby, a little boy. Despite now raising a baby at such a young age, she decided that she wouldn't give up on her dream of becoming a healthcare worker. She would just adjust it to make it more accessible. Cassie began studying to become a nurse, and just like she had in high school, she excelled. Cassie and Brad eventually moved to Silver City, New Mexico, and had a second child together. But in their early 20s, their relationship was in a rocky place. Brad had become more and more controlling of Cassie, and she started complaining to family and friends about how toxic their marriage had become. 
Finally, after deciding that they couldn't resolve their differences, Cassie and Brad separated from each other and began the long, difficult process of divorcing and settling the custody of their children. Cassie started dating a new man, David Barry, and seemed to begin to move on from her tumultuous relationship with Brad. She and David had a lot in common and quickly made things official. Cassie's close friends approved of the relationship, noticing how David made time for Cassie's kids and seemed to have the same life goals as Cassie. By early 2014, it seemed as if Cassie's life was on an upward swing. She was renting a house from one of her professors at nursing school, had a full-time job at a nearby hospital, and was working toward a custody agreement with Brad. On March 24, 2014, Cassie called her mother, Darlene Brooks, in the early hours of the morning. She told Darlene that her graveyard shift had just ended, and she planned on pushing through her fatigue to get the kids ready for school so that she could take a nap during the day before picking them up in the afternoon. Cassie went home and dropped her kids off at school just like she had planned, but she never arrived to pick them up. Concerned, the school placed a phone call to Cassie's emergency contact, her mother Darlene. Cassie's parents called Charnel Lee, the nursing professor whose house Cassie was renting, and asked Charnel to go to the property to see if everything was okay. Charnel arrived and walked to the back of the house to collect a spare key. Through the back door, she could see that the kitchen was flooded and a stream of water was flowing onto the kitchen floor from some sort of leak in the hallway. Charnel was immediately concerned, unlocked the door, and went inside to check on Cassie. She quickly discovered the source of the flooding. The bathtub tap had been left running and the tub had overflowed onto the floor and down the hall. Lying inside the bathtub was the body of Cassie, still dressed in the nursing scrubs that she had been wearing during her shift. She was lying face down, with her hair floating in the running water. Charnel tried to grab Cassie and roll her over, hoping that she could perform CPR, but she found that Cassie's body was too stiff. She had been dead for long enough that rigor mortis had set in, making it impossible to resuscitate her. Charnel had made a desperate call to 911, telling the operator that she was unable to perform CPR. While waiting for the first responders to arrive, Charnel made another bizarre discovery. The bathtub wasn't the only cause of the flooding. Somebody had also turned on the tap in the house's other bathroom, located on the opposite side of the house. The towel rail in that bathroom was lying on the floor, appearing to have been ripped clean from the wall with considerable force. Shortly afterwards, law enforcement from the Grant County Sheriff's Office arrived at the house. Jose Sanchez, the lead detective, began investigating immediately. He noticed that Cassie's bag and lunchbox from her shift had been left on her bed, as if she had never unpacked after her shift finished. What's more, it seemed as if Cassie never followed through on her plan to have a nap after dropping her kids off at school. The bed was still neatly made. Detective Sanchez noted that the house seemed secure, with no signs that anyone had broken in. After all, Charnel hadn't noticed any disturbances outside and had needed to use the spare key to unlock the door. Cassie's parents were informed that their daughter had passed away and they rushed to the house. When they got there, they were bombarded by a series of questions from law enforcement. Had Cassie struggled with mental health? Had she ever shown signs of being depressed? Darlene and Chuck were offended by the implication of these questions. To their knowledge, Cassie had never been suicidal, but even if she had, they believed that wouldn't explain why she was found covered in bruises, lying face down in an overflowing bath. 
Later, Detective Sanchez defended his initial line of questioning. His supervisor, Lieutenant Ray Tavison, insisted that these were standard questions that were asked to gain more information about the victim. He told a reporter, quote, We consider it a homicide until we're proven otherwise. But if the Grant County Sheriff's Office had considered the case to be a homicide, they spent an extraordinarily small amount of time collecting evidence and evaluating the scene of the crime. Most potential crime scenes take at least a few days to process. Often, forensic work and more in-depth crime scene investigation takes weeks to months. Sometimes, crime scenes are kept completely closed until a suspect's trial takes place. Only hours after the police were called, investigators announced that they had finished processing the scene and released Cassie's home back to her family and landlord. Cassie's family were shocked at how quickly investigators had combed through the home and reopened the crime scene, but they were even more shocked when they inspected the house and discovered how minimal the investigation had been. The bathtub that Cassie had died in was never drained. Instead, it was left full of dirty water. On top of that, the water had hidden a key detail, which was only discovered once the tub was drained. Multiple dark scuff marks on the edge of the bathtub, which seemed to have been left during a struggle. The scuff marks weren't the only sign that a struggle had taken place. Cassie's eyeglasses had also been shattered, and Cassie's body had shown dark bruisings on her forearms, upper arms, and around her neck. Later, medical examiners would conclude that the bruising pattern was consistent with Cassie being manually strangled to death by a larger attacker. Back at the Grant County Sheriff's Office, Detective Sanchez told Lieutenant Tavison that he had never bothered dusting for fingerprints in Cassie's bedroom or bathroom. The reason he gave was that he assumed the house was too clean for any fingerprints to have been left behind, something that makes little to no sense. Shortly after Cassie's death, her landlord had ripped up and replaced the home's carpet, therefore removing any evidence that could have been left on the carpet fibers. The landlord had been free to do so. The crime scene had only been closed for a few hours, and after the house was released, there was no obligation for anyone to preserve any evidence. With no fingerprints or DNA collected at the scene of the crime, the case lacked any physical evidence, and without physical evidence or credible witnesses, the trail went cold. Cassie's family were left grieving their daughter and wondering why nobody seemed to believe that she had been murdered. At first, they wondered if Cassie's new boyfriend, David Barry, might have been the perpetrator. Chuck Brooks described David's behavior after Cassie's death as being very strange and peculiar because he never really saw him shed a tear. But Chuck admitted that, ever since his daughter's body had been found, he had been suspicious of everyone that had any contact with her. More than anyone else, there was one person in Cassie's life that Chuck and Darlene believed had the motive to have murdered Cassie. Brad Farrington, her soon-to-be ex-husband. As it turned out, Detective Sanchez hadn't talked to any suspects in Cassie's death at all. Not even Brad. One important detail about Brad was that he worked in law enforcement for Silver City Police. Cassie's family wondered whether Detective Sanchez had deliberately neglected the case, trying to protect Brad out of a sense of loyalty for his fellow cop. Cassie's family refused to let their daughter's death go uninvestigated, and they contacted the district attorney's office, who arranged a meeting with the chief deputy district attorney, the Grant County Sheriff and Undersheriff, and Detective Sanchez's supervisor, Lieutenant Tavison. During the meeting, all members of the group agreed that Detective Sanchez had failed to thoroughly investigate Cassie's death. Lieutenant Tavison told the group, quote, 
I had no reason to doubt him, but I should have. I should have micromanaged him. Following the meeting, the Grant County Sheriff's Office made the decision to remove Detective Sanchez from the Cassie Farrington case. He was replaced by Sergeant Jess Watkins, a highly experienced veteran detective, who immediately began viewing the case in a different way. From day one, Sergeant Watkins had one suspect in mind, Brad Farrington. There were two things that he needed to find in order to prove his theory that Brad was the killer, motive and means. As he began talking to Cassie's friends and family, it quickly became clear to Sergeant Watkins that Brad had more than enough motive to kill Cassie. At the time of Cassie's death, she and Brad had been engaged in an intense legal battle for custody of their two children. Brad had tried to exert control over his family by taking the children to another location and refusing to tell Cassie where they had gone. Less than a month before Cassie was killed, she had told her parents that her five-year-old had repeated something that he'd heard his father say. Brad had said he was going to kill Cassie and her new boyfriend, David. Chuck would later say, quote, I don't think a five-year-old makes that up. Cassie's new relationship with David was something that Brad was particularly angry about, and he refused to allow David to become a father figure to his children. One day, her five-year-old son had called her new boyfriend, Daddy David, in front of Brad, causing Brad to become enraged. Cassie had also told her family and friends about Brad's abusive treatment of her and their children. She described how Brad had taped the children's mouths shut and restrained them by tying their hands and feet, insisting that he had only been playing a game and wasn't trying to hurt them. But Brad's abusive behavior wasn't just limited to his children. Over the years that Cassie had been married to Brad, she had told her loved ones about numerous times that he had abused her. Some of the accounts were emotional and mental abuse. Cassie had periodically been forbidden from speaking to her family, and Brad had terrorized her by holding his gun to her head and dry-firing the weapon. Dry-firing is an intimidation tactic where an aggressor appears to pull the trigger of a firearm, without revealing to the victim that the gun is unloaded. Every time Brad dry-fired the gun at Cassie, she had no way of knowing whether there was a bullet in the weapon at the time. It was a way of controlling her, making her believe that he could kill her at any moment. It also seemed that there had been instances of physical abuse between Brad and Cassie. Once, Cassie's mother had seen Brad shove Cassie against a wall and hold her in a tight headlock because she had made him angry. From what Cassie had told her friends, it was likely that Brad's abusive behavior only got worse behind closed doors. Brad had seemed to believe that his role as a police officer made him invincible, allegedly telling Cassie that nobody would ever believe that he had abused her or their children, and that he could, quote, do anything and not get caught. On one occasion, Brad told Cassie, quote, You can tell the police all you want. Who are they going to believe? They're going to believe me over you every time. Another time, he threatened her more directly, saying, quote, if you don't stop fucking with me, I'll make it look like an accident, and I know how to do it because I'm a cop. Because of those threats, Cassie never reported Brad's abusive behavior to the police, although it's not clear if she believed his statements that nobody would believe her or if she never reported it because she feared he'd harm her if she did. There was no doubt in Sergeant Watkins' mind that Brad had the means to physically overpower and kill Cassie. From the evidence found during Cassie's autopsy, he had reason to believe that Cassie's killer had been highly trained in the kind of defensive tactics often taught in the police force. All signs pointed to Brad. Sergeant Watkins described Brad's potential motive, saying, quote, I think that was his way to take what he could from her, to say, hey look, those kids are not going to have you. 
As soon as the sergeant felt he had a solid case, Brad Farrington was placed under arrest for Cassie's murder. At trial, the defense made a valid argument. Despite all the circumstantial evidence pointing towards Brad, there was no hard physical evidence that showed he had been at the scene of the crime, or proved that he had been the one to kill Cassie. Almost all of the evidence against Brad was hearsay, because although there were plenty of witnesses testifying that Brad was abusive, these were all second-hand retellings of Cassie's word. Crucially, hearsay evidence is almost always inadmissible in court. However, the judge made the rare decision of dismissing the hearsay evidence rule by allowing hearsay evidence at the trial under a forfeiture by wrongdoing exception. Forfeiture by wrongdoing is a legal term for when a defendant prevents a witness or declarant from being able to testify in a trial. In this case, the argument was that Brad had prevented Cassie from testifying about his abuse herself because he had killed her before she was able to do so. That meant that the best possible evidence of Brad's abuse of Cassie was witness testimonies. At a preliminary hearing held before the trial, the district court had ruled that the forfeiture exception applied to the case after 12 witnesses shared details about Cassie and Brad's relationship that they had heard from Cassie herself. The 12 witnesses included Cassie's new boyfriend, David, several members of her family, her co-workers at the hospital, her close friends, and an insurance agent. All of these people had stories to tell about incidents that Cassie had personally shared with them. Most of them were close to Cassie. There were people that she trusted enough to vent to because she was confident that they would be able to keep a secret. Cassie's insurance agent was included in that list because Cassie had visited the agent in a state of distress, telling them that she was there to, quote, get away from Brad for a bit, after he had attempted to run her off the road. She implied that the incident had happened shortly before her arrival at the insurance agent's office, and seemed genuinely distressed and shocked at what had happened. Those witness testimonies also revealed the extent to which Brad had control over Cassie when they were together. Cassie's finances were controlled by Brad, and sometimes he would order her to remain at home instead of going to work. He prevented her from communicating with friends and family by confiscating her cell phone and monitoring her internet history, refusing to allow her to go online without his supervision. He also kept track of Cassie's whereabouts by monitoring her phone, and Cassie told her friends on multiple occasions that Brad was stalking her, or that she believed other police officers were stalking her because Brad had asked them to. Multiple witnesses shared the same conclusion at the hearing. There was no doubt that Cassie had been terrified of Brad, and that she had wholeheartedly believed that he was going to end her life. At Brad's trial, seven of the witnesses who had been at the hearing agreed to testify against him and share the same information they'd revealed previously. They gave details about Brad's control of Cassie and the children, and examples of instances where he had caused physical or emotional harm to Cassie. They painted a picture of a highly abusive and controlling man, who caused considerable distress to Cassie throughout their marriage and after they divorced. He was willing to use his role as a police officer to intimidate and scare Cassie, and he had threatened to kill her on multiple occasions. After the four-day trial came to a close, the jury only required a few hours of deliberation before they reached a decision. Brad Farrington had killed Cassie willfully and deliberately and was found guilty of Cassie's first-degree murder. He received a life sentence, which he quickly tried to appeal, arguing that the trial had been unfair because of the hearsay evidence. However, in 2020, the Supreme Court of New Mexico rejected the appeal and upheld Brad's sentence. The final paragraph of the response to Brad Farrington's appeal reads, quote, 
Brad Farrington's extensive history of domestic violence, exploitation of his status as a police officer, and acrimonious divorce and custody proceedings supports the district court's determination that Bradley Farrington intended to procure Cassie Farrington's unavailability as a witness. Sufficient evidence supports Bradley Farrington's first-degree murder conviction. For these reasons and reasons outlined above, we affirm Bradley Farrington's conviction. Bradley Farrington thought that being the law made him above the law, but like many other monsters, he was caught and put in a cage where he belongs. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.